This is another conversation on orthodoxy. Recently, I had a chance to go downtown DC to St. Nicholas Cathedral during Pascha week. And after I came back home, I wondered some about the stereotype of orthodoxy as being strongly ethnic. Um, there at St. Nicholas, the service was about half Slavonic, half English. Certainly, there's a smattering of various languages in use in various Orthodox churches around America. And I asked my parish priest, why does it still need to be so ethnic? One thing that has to be understood about Orthodoxy here in the United States, especially when it comes to the big cities like D.C., like New York, like Chicago, is that Orthodoxy in the United States is still very young. The Greek Archdiocese is less than 100 years old. And what that's indicative of is that we're in that transition, generational transition from the people who first came here, native speakers of whatever language you're talking about, whether it's the Russians or the Romanians or the Greeks or the Arabs, and their children and grandchildren. And for the most part, the grandchildren are almost completely English speakers. Yeah. Um, and the, it is much easier in the bigger cities for these ethnic enclaves to cling to the old languages. Our biggest advocates for doing everything in English are those immigrants who are the native Greek speakers. Really? Yes. The people who are asking <laughs> to stay in Greek are converts or less so? Yeah, in some cases, yes. The people who, who converted, who married into the faith, okay. are familiar okay. with, went back when it was mostly Greek, that's what they remember, and that's what mm. they think is beautiful. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's actually the, the oldest generation of Greek speakers going, we need, to, we need to do it in English so we can get more people to come to the church. So, yeah. you know, <clears throat> out here, you know, in the smaller towns and places, you're going to find more, much more forward thinking simply because we can't afford it. If we did everything right. in Greek, we'd have 10 people on a Sunday. Right. But when you have big cities where you have, it's easier to hold on to the ethnic identity because there's so many of you. Mm. That progress is slower. So um, if you went to any of these smaller parishes uh, outside of the major metropolitan areas, you're much more likely to see more English, less Greek, less Arabic, whatever. Yeah. And Speaking as someone who was not active in any kind of worship prior to my encounter with Orthodoxy, when I entered into the worship experience as someone completely alien to this, it was personally, I felt a very deep connection. Um, even though my first experience with a full-on Orthodox liturgy was 99% in Greek. And, and you were really warming up from anything. Right. Well, in some cases, I wonder if, if that might, might not 
be easier in some cases. I, I wonder, well, my suspicion is that it, it really depends on your mindset coming right. into it. Um, I mean, it, it's a bit of a shock when you first come in just to kind of start catching everything, but I didn't find it that difficult. Right. When, when I first started coming here, uh, I guess because I was, I was receptive. Mm -hmm. I, was, I, was, I was ready for it to be different, and I was accepting of that, and so it, it wasn't shocking. Um, I suspect that her experience and probably many people uh, in that, in that same situation where they're, they're not coming after, you know, having said, oh, you know, there, there's something here I've got to find, Right. you know, if they're not already receptive, then to them, it, it, it's going to seem so much, so much more foreign, right. so much more different. Yeah. Cause I, I did go seeking when I, when I did my first, you know, liturgy and it was all in Greek. This was in Boston back in 95. Um, yeah, I was open. I had opened yeah. my heart a little bit, softened my heart to the possibility that this was something I was mm. going to be interested in. And when, you know, I encountered it, it was, I said, wow, I'm listening to things that are thousands of years old. I'm hearing things. This is ancient. This is something that really spoke to me in that, yeah. that idea. Um, though you could understand a word of it. You know, like, you know, you know, I understand a word of it. I understood though that, you know, I said, this is right. There's a connection here. The, the antiquity of it that spoke to you. That really yeah. spoke to me. So I wondered if the language is such a problem, why not just go all English? If all the parishes in the United States win English, doesn't that solve the problem? No, it hasn't. Okay. And I can tell you it hasn't because in the OCA yeah. um, basically went all English back in the 70s. Okay. And OCA has basically been pretty much like everybody else. The, the, ultimately, the language is a... And neither here nor there? It's neither here nor there. It's, it's a non-issue. Mm -hmm. Um... The issue is, in part, what is the attitude of the individual parish towards the newcomer? Right. Because there are going to be parishes that are not there for the purpose of, of preaching the gospel. They're there to be right. a country club for their particular ethnic identity. Right. It's, it's more about where you're from than, right. than who you are. <clears throat> um, and there are parishes, unfortunately, like that. Uh, and it's also the attitude of the person coming yeah. in. Yeah. Um, I forget who it was, but I was listening to something on Ancient Fifth Radio during Lent, and there's um, a priest describing uh, how, how frightening the liturgy can be to those who are not ready for it. Frightening in, in what sense? What, what about it? Um, well, he, he had a, you know, gave the example that there was this nice Greek girl who was dating an atheist, and the and the the nice Greek girl, being a good Greek girl, said, "Okay, well, if this is going to go anywhere, you need to realize that this is part of who I am, and you need to come and see." Yeah. And the guy came and see, saw, and within about fifteen minutes. He literally was outside throwing up because 
you are in front of uh, your experience, you are in front of your witnessing a foretaste of the kingdom itself. I mean, the, the liturgy is where the kingdom and the fallen world come face to face. And if you're not ready for that, you know, it can be, I mean, you have examples in the Old Testament where, you know, God tells Moses, you can't come face to face with me. It will right. kill you. And so here God, through his mercy, has allowed us to be able to come face to face through his incarnation, yet it is still a dangerous thing. And if you are not open to it, if you are not ready for it, if you are not in a place where your heart is softened, just even just a little bit, that can be a harrowing experience because... When you come face to face with God, you come face to face with the reality that you are a sinner and that there is a gulf that exists between you and God, and that can be terrifying. In America, the vast majority of Christians are not Orthodox, they're Roman Catholic or Protestant, which does make you wonder, how does Orthodoxy become attractive to them? So I wondered, are there accommodations or adaptations that can be made to the liturgy for that? I would say that the adaptation is always and has always been. Okay, here is the dogma of the church. This is how we communicate the dogma of the church to the culture around us. Mm. But that dogma does not change. The liturgical form basically does not change. I mean, we're talking about if, you know, I were to hop in a time machine and go back to uh, a thousand years ago, I would recognize what was going on. There would be certain changes that happened in those thousand years because a thousand years ago there were, were in essence two rites. You had the cathedral rite and the monastic rite and uh, the modern liturgical form is sort of a combination of the two just due to the historic reality that the cathedral rite requires many priests, many deacons and we don't have that capability anymore. But in essence, it's the same thing, same words. I mean, you can do a, 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 an analysis of the anaphora of St. John Chrysostom and be able to, by all modern academic standards, say, yes, he wrote those words. So we have been praying those same words for 1,400 years, 1,500 years. Yeah. Someone coming from outside orthodoxy could easily get the impression that orthodoxy is pretty rigid in its worship, and it makes you wonder, is that sort of rigidity necessary? Where did it come from? Was it the early church, the original church, basically liturgy-free? Well, see, the thing is that we forget that the ancient church was saw itself as part of Judaism. And Judaism did have a very complex liturgical life. Um, 
we're coming up to mid-Pentecost. The scripture that we read in this this time is John, and he is taking these festivals, all of these things that are in the liturgical calendar of the year, and he is tying them to Christ, saying, this act that we are doing with this festival is fulfilled in Christ. And uh, it's the, the festival of tents is what's, what's highlighted during this period in between Pascha and Pentecost. Uh, and the liturgical thing that they would do is they would go out to the pool of Siloam with this big picture, mm. take water from this pool, and they would be chanting uh, the halal, the Psalm 118, I think it is, you know. And they would have, you know, fruits and, and reeds, and they'd be holding them up and, and waving them in the air right. at certain times. And they would go on this big procession around the, the, the altar seven times and then pour this water out as the water sacrifice, liquid sacrifice. Yeah. For, for, and, and in the middle of this, Christ comes and says, those of you who are thirsty, come and drink. Come and drink. So, and it's all in remembrance of the rock that Moses struck in the desert. So, so you reject this idea that this this idea that the primitive church was largely a clean slate. Right. It, it was definitely not. Yeah, they were. They, they, you, know, you you look at, I mean, just simple liturgical actions from even, you know today's um, Judaism have, as, a, as a similarity to some of the liturgical actions you see in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. Um, uh, Jewish weddings are the, the dance of Isaiah. Well, we do a dance of Isaiah at our weddings. We do a dance of Isaiah at ordinations. You see, we will see in certain Jewish uh, synagogues where they will process with the Torah, you know, we, 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 we process well, with and, the gospel all the time. And then there's certainly similarities in, in a lot of things that happen around birth. Right. Yeah. You know, similar time periods and, right. and occurrences. So, so that, that, the complexity that you see in the Orthodox Church is not something that was invented whole cloth. It was something that it was a continuation of something that was already there. Certainly that makes sense for the, the early Jewish core, right. you know, but then you have the Gentiles who, you know, were, were not to man, be Jewish to pick this, this religion up whole cloth. Uh, you know, there, there were definitely, you know, there was some, somewhat of a filter there. Were you saying, okay, still the liturgical elements oh, still cross across. Well, one of the reasons why I think, um, the book of Hebrews is so popular with, with the Orthodox the Eastern Church is because it helps explain that we're a liturgical church. And here's Hebrews explaining all of these things. You know, this is why we do what we do. Yeah. This is how it's tied to Christ. This is how Christ fulfills all of these things we do. And so you have this, yes, we have this conflict between Paul um, trying to evangelize the Gentiles and you have the Jewish element basically led by um, James and there's this conflict which they resolve in the book of Acts but that's over the application of all of these laws they don't talk about 
an application in the liturgical life of the church. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of assumed. Right. And, and by, by many people who read that, that what that means is that there's this, this clean disconnect. But, but if, you, if you read Acts, there wasn't a clean dis- disconnect. I mean, the, the, by, by the letter of the law, by the letter of the decision of the Council of, of Jerusalem, Gentiles were to follow, still follow, elements of the law, not the fullness of the law. There were still things that the Gentiles of Judea, under James were to follow. And Paul eventually kind of worked through that, but it wasn't this clean, certainly was not this clean slate. As I said, the, the important part of all of this is, okay, here's who God is. Most important question anybody can ask in their life, and everybody has to answer, who is God? And here's the orthodox answer. Okay, now that we have that answer, now that we know who God is, what do we do? What does that look like here? Yeah. And part of the orthodox answer is our liturgy. Even if you can legitimately point back at the early church and show that their worship was both complicated and liturgical due to their Jewish roots, doesn't that still beg the question of how much of that is really necessary? There are different rites of worship in the Orthodox Church today, Eastern and Western Rite. Doesn't that say that the form can be changed? The skeleton is the same. Okay. If you look at, I mean, there, in the ancient church, certainly you, you can point to what, there's the, the Gaelic rite, the Roman rite, the, the North African rite, the Antiochian rite. Now there's all of these very, you know, variations, but the, the skeleton. For all of them? For all of them was identical. So you had the same moment. Did they draw from uh, a, a single ancestor, perhaps? Or is it just one of those things that just became uniform? It's just, it's, I, 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 I'd have to look to see, to, to be able to say that definitively. But I do know that if you look at all of them, the, the prayers may be different, slightly different. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the basic skeleton is the same. And it's just the meat that varies depending on the locality. Yeah. Um, and then there was, over the course of time, there was a sort of a solidification of all of these variations with the East following Constantinople and with the West following Rome. Um, in, the, in, um, in the case of Rome, in the later time it was imposed. In, in the East we claim, polemically, that it was, <laughs> it was chosen. Let's just stick with the first thousand yeah. years and, and <laughs> won't, won't deal with any of that post-schism post stuff. Uh, but um, part of the rigidity is necessary, I would say yes in the sense that change for the sake of change is dangerous and usually ends up in disaster. Um, don't, if it, ain't, if, it ain't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. And part of it also is just that learning from experience, and we've got a lot of experience of, you know, our normal inclination is to, as human beings, is to be syncretists. In other words, this is what I'm used to, and I kind of like this 
Christian thing. But there's elements that I'm not quite comfortable with. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to syncretize these two things. And what you end up then is with, you know, Gnosticism, Arianism, Nestorianism, Mm -hmm. Monophysitism, etc., etc., etc. And so that rigidity, even though rigidity is sort of almost unfair, um, because it is the way that you apply dogma, the way that you see the fathers talk about dogma to the people around them is very fluid. Um, well, but, but the rigidity that, uh, that they're questioning or that, that this viewpoint yeah. is, you know, coming from, in this case, uh, you know, the, the charismatic right. style, the, the worship experience. Well, let, me, let me answer it this way. Okay. Um, one of the great defenders of the Trinity is Basil the Great. And Basil the Great, one of his main defenses of saying that, yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are of one essence, is because we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is this, from very early on, there's this idea of Worship is an expression of dogma. We we worship and vice versa, and vice versa, so that there's this very close um, relationship between how we worship and what we believe. Right, and um, uh, and you can see that there's a clear line of that that you can see to some early documentation. I mean, reading the Divaka is an eye-opening experience for any Christian. Um, uh, you know, so here, you know, in, in, which is one of the reasons why, you know, for the Orthodox Christian, the phrase, come and see, is such a powerful phrase. Because, you know, well, what do you guys believe? Come and see. It's almost, what I believe is what I, is how I, this is my liturgy, this is how I worship. It's almost synonymous. So, and I guess there's always the danger that, well, there's the danger that if you change something, right. if you change the worship, at that point, maybe the dogma doesn't change immediately, but you, you might lose a safeguard. Right, exactly. And the dogma might shift eventually. Right. Uh, you, you lose those things. And, and, and I remember, uh, I remember Athanasius doing a very similar song and dance with the, uh, the right. Arians. Right. And they were saying, well, you know, Jesus isn't God. And he says, well, that's kind of funny. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you must be baptizing in, in the name of the Father and two creatures. Right. You know. Exactly. And, and, and holding them up in the same level. And how in the world can you get away with that? Yeah. You know, that, that's, you know, something's wrong there. And, and but then I guess, you know, the, the, the flip side of the coin, what you're saying is if, if this is your dogma, mm-hmm. your dogma doesn't change. Your worship derives from your dogma. Certainly is in order of service. Any, any right. Protestant with, with any you know, reasonable, unbiased look would say certainly. Yeah, there's 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 orders and services of the way we kind of do things, you know. But they see it as very flexible. Right. They see it as you know. There's going to be particularly in, in charismatic styles where you may have large portions of time where there's really not any kind of corporate directed focus to what's going on. 
it's it's kind of like this individualistic corporate right. thing. You know, we're all here together, but we're doing our own thing. But they're very used to this. Yeah. You know, this, is, this seems very normal and, and you know, perhaps even very useful. This is, you know, where they would say, well, this is when the spirit moves. Where does the congregation get to step in and exercise any input right. into this thing? Well, let me, let me start with the idea of, you know, in, in the Orthodox mindset, <clears throat> You know, uh, I'm one of those people who uh, really might get my hackles up when I hear Orthodox talking about the seven sacraments. There's one sacrament, and that one sacrament is the Eucharist, period, end of story. But that one sacrament then becomes innumerable sacraments, because you know, the, the participation of the Orthodox happens not at an, um, just an emotional level, not just as, you know, um, a, here, I get to do this thing in church level. It happens at an ontological level in the fact that you know, I get sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit himself when I become a member. And that reality that allows me to have Christ himself enter into me through Eucharist, which means that I get to take the kingdom of heaven wherever I go. And through my daily actions as an Orthodox Christian, I get to say, this computer is sanctified because I am using it specifically for godly things. I choose to use it in a godly manner, so therefore this computer becomes transformed through my actions, my sacramental actions, into something holy and set apart. Um, and you see the Orthodox Church corporately doing this all the time with memorial services in the Koliva. You see the blessing of the grapes, the blessing of the five loves, the blessing of the, the, the oil and the, and the wine. There's all kinds of things throughout the year. We have, you know, uh, the Book of Needs has all of these prayers for these different objects and things that you do to make them holy. And as an Orthodox Christian, it's not, it's not a Sunday thing. It's a 365 24-7 thing, and my participation goes beyond just what happens in the building. It's a total transformation of my entire life. We are the royal priesthood. You know, what we do in liturgy is not something that I do for myself. So many of the prayers are directed in, in sort of a, you know, we ask the saints for intercession when we act as intercessors ourselves. You know, we pray for those who are sick. We pray for those who are traveling. We pray for those in civil authority. We ask that through us that God, you know, that this Eucharist that we are about to take is not just effective for me personally or for us as a congregation, but that through us that it will touch all of God's people. Um, so there's a this sort of sacramental mindset that one must arrive at, you know, 
if you if you read if you take this the liturgy for at its word there's a sacramentality of life and a way of living life that that, that makes participation in church much deeper and broader and transformative than one might even begin to imagine yeah, and that you know that's sort of my answer to the what are you participating in you know who is it that you're participating in what is being transformed um you know my my, my limited experience with the charismatic movement is that it's very emotional and driven by emotions one of the things that we have to be aware of as human beings is that we are not just emotion we are not just intellect we are emotions we are intellect we are spirit we are flesh and that all of it this whole big mess that is the human being in its totality is who we are yeah and in its totality is what needs to be transformed and what is transformed in Christ. So if you're going to church and you're there just to sort of be emotional and to sort of check your intellect at the door or to check your you know physical self at the door or whatever, if you're excluding any part of that whole thing, even to the point of saying, you know, I doubt or I feel sad, I'm depressed, therefore I must not be doing something right. Um, that's all part of the human experience. That's all part of, uh, part, you know, and those things, doubt and depression and sadness and anger and um, uh, illness, just being tired, yeah. can all be transformed in Christ. You can sanctify those experiences by, in essence, saying, God, I'm so tired, God, help me. You know, give me strength to make it through this day. You know, and taking that and just going, boom, here it is. Yeah. And the, the process of what we do in our liturgies is that it's so much of, of that is, here you go, God. discussion turned toward the place of emotion in worship in the Orthodox liturgy and comparing that with how emotion is used in charismatic worship, he began to answer in a sort of roundabout way that at first might not seem like it's related, but hang in there, he ties it together in the end. You know, one of the weaknesses of Western Christianity is the fact that in Western civilization as a whole, is that we have a tendency of reducing what it means to be human to only one aspect of what it means to be human. You know, uh, whether, you know, other, one of the big things that we do is reduce what, what it means to be human to being reason. Oh, you are only, you know, only rash, it's only irrationality that, it, it's, it's your rationality that makes you human. 
I'm, I'm convinced that this is one of the reasons why abortion has been so widely accepted in Western civilization, is because it's so easy for us to dismiss the fetus because it is not a rational creature. It has no reason. Yeah. And so we've reduced humanity to such an extent that it's easy for us to commit mass murder. And once you add in all of those other things, the totality of what it means to be human, including the body, then it is impossible to see the fetus as anything other than a human being. Um, and so much of the weaknesses uh, that have resulted in the, you know, the new atheism, much of the, much of the criticisms that the new atheists have of Christianity are derived specifically from this view of humanity, of we're going to reduce it to reason, we're going to reduce it to emotion, we're going to reduce it to whatever. And then once you apply reality to that, it completely falls apart. And it also allows Christianity then to be abused as it was in this country to justify slavery, as it was in Western Europe to justify war. Um, and once you go down those roads, you know, it's just, yeah. you're inviting um, the new atheists to walk all over you. Whereas if you, under, you know, hold on to the reality that God didn't come to save my reason, He didn't come as a brain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right. he, he he came as the whole nine yards. Mm. He cried. Yeah. Got he, tired. He got tired. He ate. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and so we have to hold on to that and and. One of the beautiful things about our liturgy is the fact that it forces us, regardless of what mental state we're in, regardless of what physical state we're in, regardless of what emotional state we're in, it, 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 it I wouldn't say forces, but it does such a good job of engaging on so many different levels that regardless of what state we walk in, it is possible for us to participate. Whether even that participation is only, okay, this, the, the incense smells beautiful today. You know, walking in and smelling the beeswax candles. Even if it's only on that level today, at least my sense of smell got to participate in the worship today. You know, Little babies and children get to participate in the sense that they hear the bells, they see the lights, they see the candles, they see the, the bright colors yeah. of the vestments and the icons, you know. And so even they get to participate on a very basic level. Mm -hmm. And then you have these immensely complex and deep and beautiful poems mm -hmm. um, that form our hymnody that if you want to spend the time with them can stimulate intellectually stimulate you for years yeah you know so it's it, it hits all levels and so that participation is as much as you want to make it
person who worships in evangelical or charismatic churches feels a sense of personal freedom. Worship is a time where you respond in a way that's both public and private and that you make your own. Seeing Orthodox worship in comparison can feel very locked down, like you don't have the space to be yourself with God. I would have a couple of different responses to that. Number one is, did Moses do his own thing? Okay. How much free form craziness was there in the Old Testament uh, right. worship? And God, God told him, he told the Jews specifically, you will do these things on these specific days because I told you so. Well, and, and you have, you know, you look at like David. Right. Extremely creative individual. Right. And he has times, you know, uh, you know, where he's he's dancing naked in the streets. I and mean, he's doing some awfully odd things that aren't a part of the liturgical worship. They're right. different. They're separate. Um, so he, he has creative input. He has right, and and, and so do so do Orthodox Christians. It's just that uh, it's all within you know a structure, and, and one of the things that you have to understand is that there's more freedom within structure than there is with no structure. It's counterintuitive. Um, let me get back to that. First, uh, first, first of all, okay. So we have Moses. Uh, we have um, even within the Protestant world, um, how many of them look up to, you know, um, uh, Luther and point to him, and uh, even even the act of nailing those things on the on, on, on the door that protest becomes a structure in and of itself that they then follow. Or, or even I mean, much of the, the, the pattern of Protestant worship you know, right. derives from, from, you know, from him. From him or, or so John Calvin. Or, so so you, have, you, have, you have these people in the past that live in large when it comes to how you experience Christianity regardless of what denomination you are, regardless of what background you are. There's always going to be someone that you will be pointing to that says, this guy is informs the way that I worship God. So regardless of where you're coming from, that reality is going to exist. In the case of the Protestant, I mean, in the case of the Orthodox, we embrace it in a way that um, is to our benefit because we have almost 2,000 years of experience, human experience with participating with God that we can point to. I think that's got to be one of the strongest recommendations for, for anyone who has right. questions along these lines, is you can say, I, I understand that it might not seem right uh, in, in the way that you're used to doing things, or perhaps you, you would look at it and say, well, that's just bound to be a course for disaster, right. you know, to lock things in that tightly, and yet I can show you Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of this exact pattern, right? Uh, you know, in style of worship and life, this communal life, and it's working. It's working. It's, and it's worked and it's worked and it's worked. So, yeah, history does not agree with you. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, back to this idea of, you know, you have more freedom within structure than you do with no structure. It's the freedom of no okay um it's easier to it's easier to, to uh, let me let me use a metaphor um 
if we look at alcohol, uh, alcohol can be godly and it can be completely destructive. So that if we say that um, anything goes yeah. with alcohol and that it is, you know, you, do, you use alcohol however you feel you need to, right. it is inevitably going to lead to someone getting in and killing themselves while driving, drunk, uh, alcohol poisoning, becoming an alcoholic, yeah. and destroying all kinds of lives around them, yeah. inevitably. Yeah. If you say anything goes, do what you feel like. Um, whereas if you say that, okay, within this structure, we can use alcohol, then the use of alcohol actually becomes freeing because and profitable and profitable because you know um <clears throat> you know especially in context of our liturgy wine becomes the body and blood and that's uh, yeah. the, uh, the ultimate medicine but even if removed from that you know uh small amounts of alcohol can help help you relax it, you know these has certain medicinal benefits yada 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 so suddenly it becomes a very powerful tool it's yeah. freeing it's healthy you know etc and so what is true for alcohol is also true for worship is that within a particular structure there's a lot of freedom here um because you know the amount of liturgical life that we have there's so much there for you to grab onto and make your own. Um, you know, some people, you know, love reading the epistles. Some people love reading the Psalms. My mom, for example, she lives for that. You know, she can't chant to save her life, but man, give her the Psalms to read and she's happy as a clam. Yeah. You know. Uh, there's all kinds of different ways within this structure for people to make some part of it their own and this mm -hmm. is and own it and make it and live it whereas you know <clears throat> if you're doing whatever feels right inevitably someone is going to get hurt and you see that expressed in the fact that there are depending on how you count them, 20, 30,000 different denominations. Yeah. Because eventually somebody did get hurt and said, enough of this, yeah. this I'm going to go over here and do it right. And the other thing to remember is that within the historical church, we are not saved as individuals. We're saved as a corporate body. Individually, we choose to become part of that body, and then individually, we find how to best participate within that corporate body. But we are, we are not saved as individuals. And, 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 there, and, and in a sense, it's natural for the structure to derive from the corporate, right. from the head, ultimately. Right. Um, and the head is God. And, and the head is God, not us. <laughs> right, right. Uh, rather than 
than from the individual yeah. person. You know, the, it's not like the individual cells of your body to kind of right. decide how best they want to. Right. Like, well, how am I going to do it today? Right. You know, they function for the benefit of the body. Right. They, they do their job, and their job doesn't change. Yeah. They do the same thing, and, and they do it to the best of their ability. Yeah, and the other thing is, is that ultimately, if you were going to the liturgy or your service or whatever it is, in order to have your own private space within, you know, what's really going on? Who are you? Who's your God? Who are you worshiping? What is the purpose of your worship? Are you going in order to humbly approach God and ask God to enter into your life? Or are you demanding that God give you an experience? Do, do what you want him to do. And the reality is, is that, you know, most of us, if we did what we wanted to do with our lives, as opposed to what God wants us to do with our lives, we end up with disaster. Whereas if we <clears throat> humbly submit and say, okay, God, <laughs> what do you want me to do? And then follow that revelation. Um, inevitably, it's fantastic. I mean, again, when you have 2,000 years of experience, you have great stories. One of my favorite is John Chrysostom. You know, he wanted to be a monk. He wanted to be a hermit, live in a cave, and escape for life. <laughs> That's what he wanted to do. That was his life that he was going to lead. And God said, no. That's not where you're supposed to be. <laughs> Talk about your, your all-time pendulum swings. to the patriarchy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, so therefore God gave him stomach problems. And so he had to come back to the city in order to be able to deal with his stomach. And it was there that he found his true purpose. So, you know, you have the sense of perhaps... Perhaps the best way to fulfill your purpose as an individual is to submit yourself to the purposes of of, the of, body. of yeah. you know, yeah. and ultimately those purposes are God's to God's purpose yeah. through the corporate body, right. and not to continue to insist that you need to split off into a single my relationship with God yeah. this this one to one you know thing that, that becomes the primary focus so often yeah you know. And it's not like it, that, that, that personal relationship isn't there. Yeah. It is. But it's, it's more of, you know, imagine a large family. And it's not like um, you can escape being part of the family. You have to be part of that. And your role in that family is to be son, daughter, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, nephew. You know, all of those functions exist within the larger corporate family. Right. But the re that reality doesn't change the fact that you have individual relationship with your father mm. or with your brother or with your children. Yeah. But, but how, how distorted would it get, mm. does it get, if you pretend as if the rest of the family is more or less meaningless. Right. You know, we, we get, I get together with the family so that, right. you know, we can kind of, we can do a thing together, but really it's about me right. and my dad. Right. And my siblings don't exist. You right. know, everybody else exists. You know, that, that, that would get distorting. 
you're an ultimately. But I think they would they would say well the opposite. You, you you think only the family. You don't have any relationship between. You know, it's like where's the individualistic? You know, where's, yeah. yeah. And, and and as as it is for most orthodox answers, it's both and. Yeah. Yeah. You can't have you can't have a real relationship with God mm-hmm. without the corporate body. Yeah. And you can't have um, a relationship with the corporate body without the individual relationship with God. You have to, you have to have both. Right, right. You have to make that individual decision, yes, I'm going to become a part of that corporate body. Yeah. And you can't have, you know, that yes without the corporate body. It's just like the whole idea of the bishop. You know, the bishop is not a bishop without the people. And the people are not the people without the bishop. place to have input or or to have the one-on-one doesn't have to take place or doesn't have to kind of shoulder out, you know, elbow out, sorry, room within the liturgy. You don't have to take that structure and say, well, we've got to drop something because I need some time in here. And, the, or, you know, and I know there's time. There, there are times for personal prayer. And, and right. It's not fair to say there's not time. Right. But in, in, in the sense in which they mean it, right. to, to just say, okay, we're going to have a block of time in between this prayer and this prayer, <laughs> 10, 15 minutes, where we're going to play some good music you know, in the background and um, just, you know, just feel it, just kind of do your thing. But, but to say those things are not bad, it's okay for you perhaps to have those experiences, but you don't have to. I have to insist that it happens during this because this is not the point. Yeah, it's, it's We're here place, for something else. Yeah, it's not the place or the time. That and you whole, can do it. Uh, yeah, but that, there, there's 168 hours in a week. Right. Exactly. You know, we're only asking for about an hour and a half on, right. on Sunday morning. Like, where, <laughs> yeah, where's well, the other 166? <laughs> you know, this time. And that's that's ultimately the challenge that orthodoxy has for the modern American is because in reality. We should be doing a liturgy every day. In reality, we should be doing Vespers every day. And we have so distorted time in modern America in such a materialistic way that, in such an historian way, that I need to accomplish everything that I need to accomplish spiritually in that 45, 90 minute window of time that I have allotted on Sunday. And then everything else is associated, you know, I have this amount of time dedicated to my children, this amount of time dedicated to my work, this amount of time for doing my art. And that somehow, magically, none of these things interact with each other, none of these things affect each other, you know. Um, And if I don't get that exactly what I need in that 90 minutes from church, then something's wrong. When the reality is, is that, well, didn't God give you those children? Didn't God give you that yard? Didn't God give you that work? 
so that, you know, the reality is, is that God is there and God is participating in your life 24-7. Yeah. And we have to make that choice individually and corporately mm-hmm. to allow him in. And so that individual space that they're talking about is actually available to them anytime they want. We come together specially f- as a corporate body mm-hmm. to, to do, do the, other, the, the other stuff. Yeah, that you can't do by yourself. Exactly. Yeah. It does seem a bit unfair to <laughs> suggest that you have to take this time, that it really has a very specific purpose, right. and, you know, and, and, and insist that it be all things. There, there's something in, in, you know, intrinsically wrong with it because it, it doesn't accommodate other needs, other, other things. Is there room in orthodoxy for the charismatic you know, experience? Is it that, that sort of thing or, or is it just like, no, thank you? Oh, there's definitely room for it. I mean, read Simeon, the new theologian. <laughs> he was got to him yet. <laughs> he's, he's, in essence, the, uh, he's the charismatic of his time. You know, this insistence of Simeon that, yes, we can participate in the Holy Spirit that the average Joe nobody has access to God himself in the spirit is definitely a reality. And that, you know, uh, the church provides all of these different tools for us to get there, you know, to have, you know, the whole concept of, you know, look, you've been sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You go with the Holy Spirit wherever you go. Therefore, what you need to do is have an, a life, spiritually oriented life, so that when you are doing this stuff on the computer, it can be transformative in the spirit and tapping into that and the ways that the church says, okay, here's the way that the saints have done it in the past. Here you go. Yeah. It worked for them. It can work for you. Yeah. Well, if that particular thing is not your float, your boat, you know, yeah. we've got this over here that worked for these guys. That's the, the that's the advantage, as I said, of having two thousand years of of experience. Yeah. the upside here's the scary thing for people coming in and, and looking at this you know you, you look for certain signs of life you know and and you know an uptake in spirituality and you know just just even just a desire you know, a level of desire and sometimes find it lacking right and you immediately start to wonder is that because this setup, this style, is perhaps intrinsically encouraging people to cruise. You know, you do your thing, you come, you participate, but the participation, you know, because it's repetitive, because it's the same thing, that, that like, they're not being kind of pushed to go 
deal well, with it, and that this, this, you know, this. Well, I mean, there's just there's this very deep understanding within orthodoxy that God is not coercive, and God is patient. Um, we all the tools that you need to be transformed into a saint are right here. You just need to choose to become that person. And there are times and there are places within the history of humanity where people have been inclined to decline that opportunity. Um, and there is also the reality that um, there are times when the freedom allowed to the average Christian from the world made, made making those choices extremely difficult. And one of the things, one of the things that you are seeing in 21st century America is that much of Orthodox, much of the Orthodox world is still recovering because we've been in survival mode for so long. We're holding on to the form because it's the form. This is what we do. Make sure that this form is passed on to the next generation so the next generation has it. And there is something holy in that. There's something even transformative about that, of just, you know, here is my given circumstance. I am poor as dirt. I have no freedom politically or economically. But the one thing I do have is the church. And I'm going to make sure it's still here when I die. Yeah. So I can give it to my children. There's something holy about that. That, and the reality is, is that guess what? We're still here. Yeah. Because generation after generation chose to do mm. exactly that, despite the circumstances around them. And then there are those times where you see this magnificent flowering, you know, like the fourth century, where you know, you had people reading the life of St. Anthony and going, oh, wow. Yeah, let's do this that. This is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And just having the freedom to really dive head first and have it just explode. Coming from the outside, I just want to know is, is I have my responsibility for myself. I have my responsibility for my family and my children. And so I have to be pushing for myself and I have to be giving them all of the, the opportunity and availability and, and, and doing everything I can. The church also has a responsibility. You know, the corporate, you know, I have my responsibility to them and to the things that, that God has placed me relationship with the corporate has a responsibility to us as well and are they doing everything that they're supposed to be doing you know to make sure that you know, this this life you know is is visibly living right yeah. <laughs> well yeah. the, you know the thing the wonderful thing about it is is that you know regardless of what church you go to regardless of what denomination you're talking about you are going to find 
places and people that look dead for all intents and purposes. The one thing that I have faith in and that I know that we will, as the Orthodox Church, will always be able to fall back on is that we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will make sure that somebody somewhere is saying the right thing so that this thing will keep going even in the darkest, baddest, most awful times. Uh, we're still here. Um, and that all it takes is one person. That's all it takes. It is scary because you have to take that leap of faith. Thanks for listening to another conversation on orthodoxy hopefully you got your money's worth thanks to detach anthony rijakov blank and kit dexter Britton, jazar jason shaw kevin mcleod and plus plus for the use of their music you can find their tracks and more at the excellent site freemusicarchive.org <laughs>